Welcome back to the 2020 Network, brought to you by Interact. Today, I speak with Alex Usher, President of Higher Education Strategy Associates, about the impact of the COVID-19 crisis on the post-secondary education system. Thanks for joining me, Alex. How are you? Good, good. So we're in strange times, you know, as it stands, 1.7 billion students worldwide are out of school due to this pandemic. That's about 90% of the world's learners. Um, This crisis has massively disrupted education and is forcing us to rethink the sector as a whole. Have you ever seen the post-secondary sector move this quickly before? Uh, no, I think you'd have to go back to 1939 for something like this. Um, uh, I mean, it's not absolutely unprecedented when you to to get um, you know universities in the the you know working in the na- I guess in collectively in in the broader interest and the national interest. But I I do think it is restricted to wartime. And so let's let's try and you know cast our minds back um, to before the this pandemic before we dive into to more of what we're seeing today. What were the major concerns of Canadian universities and colleges prior to the pandemic? Money. I mean, I think that's always the case with higher education. You can't measure quality in higher education, right? So people tend to use proxies for for quality. And those proxies usually have to do with how much money you're spending, what kind of people you're able to attract, what kind of scholarships you can give, what kind of buildings you're building. So there's always an assumption that that you're searching for more money. And, and uh, uh, there's really no limit. Um, there's, there's a joke in higher education, which is, you, you know, um, you know, what is it? You know, higher education raises all the money it can, and it spends all the money it raises, and that's the the simple equation about about how the the system functions. I would say, um, over the last decade in Canada, um, we've seen effectively zero growth in public financing of higher education after inflation. So, um, you know, the 2010s we saw some very aggressive increases in education. People kind of got used to that between about 2000, 2009, 2010. Um, Canadian universities were getting increases in public funding of inflation plus four, inflation plus five. It really was an amazing decade. Um, Nothing like it since the 1960s, really. Um, And then that came to a halt. Uh, You know, there's been no new public funding after inflation, really, across the country in the past decade. But what we have done is increase the amount of money that's coming from students. And that's not because we are charging domestic students a lot more. We're not. There have been tuition freezes in places and in many places over the last few years. Um, But what we have been doing is inviting in a lot more international students. And so that international students now make up, uh, you know, a very large percentage of, of institutional revenue. Uh, Cape Breton University, which you might be familiar with, is now about two-thirds funded through international student revenue. Uh, here in Toronto, the University of Toronto gets more money from international students than it does from uh, Queen's Park. So, um, you know, we've we become a much more market-oriented sector. And uh, that works as long as the international students keep coming in. But if they stop, that's a problem. Houston, I think we have a problem, right? We're seeing the lockdown of borders. Um, and for sure, I sit on the board of the University of Windsor. We, we also um, attract international students uh, to our engineering program, to some of our health programs. Um, so how should universities 
be thinking about the 2021 academic year? Um, as far as international students goes, I think uh, an awful lot depends on when and how we come out of the current uh, lockdown. Uh, I can imagine scenarios where, in fact, universities come out better as a result of this. You know, if you could imagine where the, you know, we start to relax social distancing uh, measures here in Canada in, say, June, leading to the point where we actually are able to um, open universities and colleges in the month of September, and the Americans can't, right? Imagine if they can't open until October or November while we're starting in September. I don't think we got a problem at all. In fact, I think we're going to have a mass rush of, of international students. And so, you know, in that scenario, we could do, you know, I don't, I don't think there's a, a financial problem here. The difficulty comes if we aren't open in September. Um, and I mean, we just don't know what the international student demand is going to look like. We could say yes to them. We could keep enrolling those students if they're prepared to take classes online. And that's actually, uh, I mean, we just don't know if they'll do that or not. I suspect a lot will because they say, well, I'll, I'll accept the online place because it means I can go in January. And certainly for all those students who, who view, you know, a time in a Canadian university or, um, uh, or college as a step towards immigration, a term online probably doesn't matter that much. Right, as long as we can provide it with some some degree of competency, um, the question I think is really, can we deliver it with competency? And I just don't think we know if we can. Do, we've, you know, we we managed sort of three or four weeks of emergency teaching uh, on the internet. I don't know if we can do uh, a full set of courses at uh, at full throttle for four months. Like we we may be we may find out in the fall. In September 2018, you know, Canadian universities experienced a bit of a shock when Saudi Arabia uh, suspended scholarships for about 16,000 Saudi students and ordered them to attend elsewhere over its uh, displeasure with a tweet from Minister Freeland. Uh, did we learn anything from that experience and what does it potentially, you know, tell us about September 2020? I don't think we learned very much, um, in part because we didn't need to. Um, you know, not all the Saudis left. In, at some institutions, a lot of them stayed. Um, in, and, and they were certainly more than made up for by new enrollments that we were picking up from elsewhere. I mean, you got to remember, Canadian universities and colleges, they've been getting double-digit growth in international students for years. So you lose a few thousand Saudis, that's fine. There's more students coming in from India, Nigeria, you know, Vietnam, wherever. Um, so in a sense, we didn't, there wasn't really a financial hit. There was a, there was a short-term scramble to make sure that people, you know, as far as possible, didn't lose credit for their work and that they would land on their feet. So in a sense, it was more of a, a humanitarian crisis than it was a financial crisis for most institutions. I think there were maybe two or three that actually felt a significant financial hit, but even that it would have been by September, 2019, that, that financial hit would have been over that those, those numbers would have come back. Okay, so I want to go back to, uh, you were mentioning sort of this readiness to um, deliver education online. Um, are, are, do you have a sense of how ready the sector is? Are there, are there some universities that are ready and other universities just aren't there yet? Or what's your sense? Well, I think universities that have a 
long history of, of online teaching. So Athabasca University and Thompson Rivers University, which, which includes what used to be called the BC Open University, um, those two will be fine. Everybody else, I think, is scrambling. Nobody knows. Let me make a, a little bit of a distinction here, between, uh, which I think is important for people to understand between um, what most people call online learning and what I would call remote teaching. Online learning is a very complex and expensive enterprise to get into. And again, I think if you look at, if you've ever taken a course without the Basque University, if you've ever taken a, you know, a, a MOOC, a massive online open course through Coursera or edX, um, you know, there's a lot of online resources and a lot of instructional design that goes into those kinds of courses. They cost... 25 for I mean, you know the, the the MOOC costs I would say when that was a big phase uh, you know fad 70 years ago universities were spending fifty thousand to a hundred thousand dollars to make a good MOOC now you know they're spreading that over tens of thousands you know over a, a large number of students but that's still a lot of money that's online learning right you've got an online environment you've got platforms that are designed for these things you've got instructional design you've got you know online learning tools those kinds of things what we did in the month of March, and by we, I mean, you know, Canadian universities and colleges, was we did remote teaching. Um, in a lot of cases, what happened was, you know, the, the professors said, okay, thanks, everybody. Uh, great class. Um, don't forget to send in your, uh, your exam. And uh, the final is a take-home. <laughs> right? And that, that's not really online teaching, but that's what will happen in a lot of cases. Um, and the reason we got through it is was because, in effect, institutions didn't mandate anything from their teachers. They basically threw their teachers into the into the deep end and said, "Figure it out as best you can. Whatever rules you come up with, whatever rejigging of grades, everything like that, just do the best you can." And I think everyone uh, responded pretty well, and they they did their best with the skills they had and the equipment they had and everything like that. But it's not going to be like that doing a full term. Right. I mean, in, in effect, they got universities and colleges got buy in from staff because they let staff to, you know, figure figure everything out for themselves. You can't do that if you're starting a term that way. If we go into into September with the free for I mean, I mean, it won't happen. Right. They, they have to put some rules in place about, you know, what constitutes a contact hour, what constitutes office hours. What I mean, there's a whole bunch of I mean, because universities are among the most unionized environments in Canada. There's going to have to be a lot of discussion about what those things mean. There's going to have to be, um, you know, those huge thousand-person first-year courses, the ones that just leave first-year students, you know, to sink or swim. We're going to have to redesign those in a lot of cases, and we have to do a lot of work on it very, very quickly. In, you know, uh, Thompson Rivers and, and Athabasca have had decades to get good at this. Nobody else has the staff, really, to put in, to throw, you know, at instructional design um, and into teaching and learning to make this work at scale, even uh, with four or five months' notice. It's just, it's a massive, massive task. So it's still going to be stumbling along in September if we have to start online. Um, it's not going to be pretty. Um, you know, I think the issue is just how, um, how, I mean, it's really, it's still kind of DIY <laughs> uh, for institutions. They're just going to, they're going to plug some solutions together. And, uh, you know, I think they've done an okay job so far. I'm sure they'll do an okay job, but it is not going to look anything like uh, a high quality online learning environment. It's simply the best we can do in an emergency. 
so let's assume for the sake of argument that um, there's, you know, full university Senate cooperation and, you know, cooperation from uh, unions uh, to to making a big push to an online environment should it prove necessary. Do universities have the financial resources to make that change? I'm just thinking about what you said earlier about we raise the money and we spend the money. I think in the short term, yes. I mean, is it, they don't have any choice, right? They have to operate. So so I think it's simply a question of how much they choose to put at risk. And they're going to make those decisions about risk without knowing. They have to make them now. They have to make them in the next four to six weeks. And that's long before we'll know how the the, the, the wind down of, of social distancing will happen. So everybody's just going to have to place their bets. My guess is, is that provincial governments are not going to cut money in the emergency. The problem is I don't think they're going to increase money to institutions afterwards either. So, you know, you got to take a sort of a medium-term look here, like 12 months from now. What, not what does budget 2020 look like, but what does budget 2021 look like? And I suspect that as we start to think about how we unwind these massive government uh, expenditures, um, you know, the wage subsidy program and those kinds of things, what does it mean to pay all that money back? And I don't you know, I, I don't think it will go well for institutions. So institutions will avoid trying to make really expensive long-term changes I, without knowing. But on the other hand, they have to make as, as big an investment as they can to try and make sure that they don't lose the international student enrollment, right? So you have to do something that is credibly useful for international students and, and that they will still want to come because you lose those students, particularly in Ontario and BC where, 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 and Nova Scotia, I guess, where institutions are really dependent on that revenue. Um, it will be very painful not to make the investments. So, you know, there's a lot of factors here. It's very hard to tell each institution is going to come up with their own solutions, but um, you know, it, it, it's a, dicey moment because nobody knows how to weigh those risks. A dicey moment indeed. And, you know, speaking of factors, human factors, you know, will, will international students or, or even, you know, domestic students uh, be willing to pay the same price for an online education versus an in-person one, you know, regardless of the investments that, that, that are required to put on a, a good online course? I think sometimes we just assume online cheaper in person pricier online is only cheaper if you can spread the money over more students <laughs> um, otherwise you're still paying the same professors to, to, to teach the same uh courses right and that's a, a big chunk of your your money so i don't i don't know i mean i think in the united states for instance where uh, you really do have a choice when you move to post-secondary. Do I go to a four-year college? Do I go to a two-year college? The widespread ability to take those courses in, you know, from two-year uh, colleges and take them up to four-year colleges, I think that's going to have a big effect. I suspect there are a lot of students in four-year or who would have gone to four-year colleges in the U.S. who are going to enroll in two-year colleges instead. Um, for exactly that reason, because they think they can get a course for cheaper. Here, we don't have perfect substitutes like that. So, yes, I can spend less and go to a community college, but I can't then take those community college credits very easily and turn them into a university degree. Um, I mean, you can to some extent in BC and, and in Alberta, and I think those those two provinces are probably the ones to watch um, in terms of you know student pricing behavior. But in the rest of the country, you can't. In Ontario, you can't. So I'm not convinced that... Uh, like students, it, it will rankle, 
<laughs> I'm sure students won't be happy to pay full price for um, what will inevitably be seen as a lesser product. Um, but I think that's the uh, that's the price you have to pay. International is a little different, and I don't know how that will play out. I think you may see some price reductions for international students, but um, it's hard to say yet. I don't. I don't think there's any institution that's really thinking about that yet. They, you know, until Friday, it was all about how do you save this semester. Now they're thinking about, okay, how do we, you know, uh, how do we get through spring and summer semesters? And it's only late this week and, and early next week, I think, that most institutions will really start thinking about the hard decisions for September. Yeah, it's really difficult. And, you know, in addition to, you know, this hasty transition to an online environment, that wasn't exactly, as you say, a transition to an online environment. Some of it was just, okay go home and and you're going to have a take home exam um but but for sure universities still and colleges uh still had to shut down their campuses and mm-hmm. you know which is a, a huge uh undertaking and something that Harvard got, you know, a bit of uh criticism over because they were maybe a little bit too hasty and didn't take um low income students needs and international students uh, unique challenges into account. Mm-hmm. How did Canadian universities and colleges fare in this sudden shutdown? Um, it varied a little bit by province, I would say, because people took different um, views about what a shutdown meant. Uh, Quebec was the one province where the provincial government really took a firm hand and said, guys, you're closing now. And they were not very clear about what they meant by closing, right? I think they meant I think they meant to say suspend face-to-face classes, but literally they said close, which means no one can show up, which means there's no food service in residence. We have no idea what's good. Do you have to empty the residences? That took uh, 72 hours, I think, for the universities to really figure out what was going on. Um, You know, there's questions about what happens to some parts of the scientific research exercise, which need, you know, where the labs, you've got ongoing experiments, you need to tend them. Are people allowed in? Um, you know, there are some places, you know, Alberta is still a little bit open as a campus, so they don't, they haven't been, um, it, it's not a complete freeze. So again, so the access that you have to labs is quite different across the country, depending on what measures have been taken locally. And that's where I think, um, you know, some of the, the hard decisions for September are going to happen, which is what's the balance of a university within the university between teaching and research in this time? Um, and some of that's going to be forced on them from the outside, which is, you know, you, you can't go into those labs. And some of it is going to be uh, an institution saying, you know what, we need to run a lot more class sections because we need smaller class sections if it's online. So you teachers, you're going to, you're not going to teach two semesters and two, two classes a semester and spend the rest of the time researching. You're going to teach three and you'll research less. Um, I, I mean, I don't know how that's going to play out at each institution. I don't think anybody is thinking about that stuff now, but those are the kinds of questions and decisions and trade-offs that people will have to be thinking about in the summer. And it's certainly the spot where faculty unions will start to play a major role. Uh, Very early on in the crisis, we had the Quebec, uh, the Federation of Quebec University Teachers, um, actually tell their members, listen, you don't have to teach online. Your, your, Your collective agreements say you don't have to teach online. Well, if we get a lot of people, and that's probably true, um, I'm not, not disputing their interpretation here, but boy, if everybody takes that uh, view come September and we're still closed, I don't know how the universities will survive. Yeah, holy moly, that would be um, 
that would be very, very difficult uh, to cope with. Um, I want to stick with the, the research enterprise um, just a little bit. Um, I know, uh, for example, at the University of Windsor, we have seconded um, uh, some of our lab equipment to um, clinical labs so that they can assist with testing in Ontario. Um, and, you know, other uh, research projects just had to uh, hastily be shut down. Um, you know, what, what, what are the long-term impacts to, uh, to the university and college research enterprises? If we're out of this in August and, um, and the economy bounces back quickly, I would say not very much. Um, I, the, I mean, you know, there, there are people's short-term research efforts that are going to get um, disrupted if they're not in medical research. I would say, uh, and some types of life sciences, I mean, a lot of those labs have simply closed down. And so, you know, uh, people's tenure clocks are going to be affected and, and, you know, to the extent that it matters for promotion. But I, I suspect institutions are all just going to, you know, pretend this year didn't happen as far as tenure and promotion um, uh, are concerned. In terms of actually moving forward, you know, the really big thing is how big a hit does the federal government take from all this? My take on what the the spate of government announcements that we've seen so far from provincial and federal governments is that the federal government has spent a lot more and will spend a lot more through this crisis than the the provinces do. Um, and that's not a bad thing because I think long term the federal government has more fiscal room than the provinces do. But um, research money comes from the feds, and if the federal government has a very large financial position to unwind, it's hard to imagine how research funding is going to be unaffected for that. Now, I suspect given the nature of the crisis, it will be politically untenable to, to cut um, uh, money from CAHR, the Canadian Institutes of Health Research. But I could certainly see the science budget and the, the social sciences and humanities budgets taking uh, the brunt of whatever fiscal adjustment has to happen. Now, that's Minimum two years down the road. Nobody's going to cut budgets, I don't think, until 2022. But I would say medium term, that's a real issue. And I think um, you do have to wonder what kinds, given those kinds of cuts, what kind of career uh, prospects are there for current graduate students and current postdocs? Um, I would not be particularly, again, outside the medical field or, or life sciences field, I wouldn't be hugely confident right now. So you mentioned, you know, the provinces and uh, earlier you, you had mentioned how Alberta had um, uh, their local restrictions allowed for, for some activities on campuses. Um, what is happening at the University of Alberta right now? There was, you know, um, some pretty serious budget cuts being contemplated at that university, you know, including closing a library. What, what's happening there? I mean, this is, has nothing to do. That has nothing to do with um, with the coronavirus. What happened in Alberta over two budgets? Um, that is, so the, the UCP was elected in the spring of 2019. It did not bring in a budget until October, and then effectively it brought in two budgets in the space of about mm, five months, right? So one in October and one in late February. And across those two budgets. Um, uh, you know, it tried to make good its party platform of returning the the province of Alberta to a balanced budget and, uh, you know, without touching health care. So higher education was one of the areas where uh, spending was cut the most. Um, 
Alberta is a province that has, for the last 15 years or so, spent an awful lot of money on higher education. So it had pretty much the highest expenditures per student of any province. Um, and that was largely because the provincial government under Ed Stelmack, so this is going back 15 years now, felt like spending a lot of money on it. Um, and so they, they went from being about the Canadian average to being about 20, 30% above the Canadian average in terms of spending per, per student. This government just wants to bring it back down to the provincial, to the national average, I think. Um, and obviously that's difficult to do because university budgets are very brittle. Uh, tenure means, you know, your big cost centers you can't actually cut. So if someone says cut 20% and you're not allowed to touch and, and you know, faculty or 50% of your budget, what that really means is you're cutting 40% of the rest of the budget. And um, it, 40% is not what, I mean, that's actually a little, that's a little higher than what U of A is being asked to absorb. But U of A has been asked to absorb quite a lot of uh, cuts. The cuts were not equal across all institutions. And uh, U of A was singled out for various reasons, which apparently have some kind of empirical basis, but I'm just not quite, quite clear what they are. Um, you know, the cuts are, I think, in the range of sort of 15% over two years. And so, yeah, that means uh, merging programs. That means uh, shutting certain things down. Uh, there's no, uh, I mean, there's no magic to it. I mean, COVID doesn't help, right? <laughs> um, you know, all those decisions came down in late February, I think. So only a couple of weeks before the shutdown. So the U of A's had a very hard time of it um, and will continue to have a hard time of it. I think most institutions in Alberta will, but uh, it's not primarily coronavirus related. Okay, interesting, because I wasn't sure what I what I was seeing happening there. So, so thanks for that context. So, you know, thinking about um, universities, I mean, these are organized, you know, the, the type of organization, a university, you know, goes back to uh, medieval times, right? The idea of, you know, professors, you know, uh, are sometimes only admitted, at, you know, once they give a public lecture. Um, you know, we still have these traditions and here we are, you know, having discussions about online environments and, you know, uh, how um, educators have to um, think about the difference between, you know, online learning environments um, versus just, you know, webinars for pure, uh, you know, information transfers. So, mm -hmm. you know, to the to the educators out there, you know, what should they be thinking about as they, um, you know, think about their role in, in, in an environment that may not be dramatically changed? Um, you know, in the short term, it was a quick pivot, but, you know, there may be a fairly strong pivot back to, to business as usual. But, you know, for educators, should, should they be thinking about, you know, uh, their, their roles differently? Certainly for the duration of the crisis, yeah. Um, I think one thing that's really important over the next few months is um, everybody, pretty much, I would say, has got to get better at communicating, and in particular, communicating with students. Um, we talk about, you know, do we have the right technology for online learning and all that kind of stuff, but it's actually, it's, look, what matters is, is empathy, right? I mean, that's one of the things teachers are really good at in class. They know how to pick up, you know, how to read a room. Um, it's different when you're online, and you know what? Students are scared right now. Students are, they're facing, you know, the worst summer ever for student employment. They don't know where the money's coming from. They don't know what the economy looks like. I think graduating students in particular, it's, it's a very, uh, they're, they're fragile right now and they're, and they're entirely justified in being so. Um, 
And more than anything, what institutions have to communicate and what teachers have to communicate is, look, we're a community, we'll get through this together, we'll be flexible, we'll be fair, um, and we'll try to meet your needs. Uh, you know, I think the, the days, you know, we, we, you fall into a mode, I think, as, as institutions of just sort of viewing the whole thing as kind of a, a credit factory, right? You come take the courses, we teach the courses, you get the fact, you know, it's, it's not that way at all. These, these students right now, I think, are in real distress and you have to be focused on their needs in a way that we maybe typically are not. Um, and come the fall, I think, you know, we're going to be first year is the most fragile time for students. This is when most people drop out because it's an unfamiliar environment. Well, this is a doubly unfamiliar environment. You're not just going from secondary to post-secondary. You're going from in-person in person to online, probably for the first time ever for, for a lot of these students. So we really have to think a lot about, um, the kind of, um, pastoral care that we give to students through these kinds of classes. I think that's that's probably never been uh, more important. Uh, maybe more interesting, I put a more positive note on this, is you know we can be really creative right now. This is a moment, this is a once in a generation, once in a lifetime moment to actually rethink what it is we do in, in post-secondary education and why we do it. I actually think that the balance between research and teaching might change significantly um, as a result of this crisis in favor of teaching. I think, you know, people might say, you know what, a lot of the research we've been putting out has been not particularly high quality. We're doing it not because it betters the public, but because it furthers the, um, you know, the game that academia likes to play, the sort of status games that go on within academia. Maybe we don't need to do as much of it. Maybe we should be focusing more on teaching. And I think the pivot to uh, whether you call it remote or online teaching, actually does require teachers to really think about, well, how is it, you know, how am I changing my pedagogy so that students are actually learning this stuff? And it gives institutions a chance to say, actually, there's work that we can do collectively to improve ourselves on this. So they could increase their, you know, their investments in uh, centers for teaching and learning. They could certainly put a lot more emphasis on pedagogy, uh, than they currently do. I mean, you could change, uh, you know, tenure and promotion rules in favor of, of more pedagogy. You could certainly change pe uh, tenure rule promotion rules in favor of public service. And I certainly hope people do that uh, over the next little while because that's criminally undervalued in most uh, institutions. So I think there there is a reinvention moment going on. Um, how much everybody takes advantage of it, I don't know. But I think... I can certainly hear from some institutions that um, there's an appetite to think about larger change, to take this moment to think about larger change. And I think that's, that's. Um, I mean, obviously, I, I, you know, you don't want to say we need a pandemic to change the system, but um, it, it is interesting that people um, don't seem to want to waste the crisis. Alex Usher, thank you so much for your insights, uh, for sharing, uh, you know, potential opportunities for progress in the post-secondary environment and your message of empathy for educators and students. I think that's really important. Thank you so much. Thank you. Now I'll be speaking with Gabrielle Menez, a third-year law student at the University of Ottawa, on how COVID-19 is impacting her life as a student. Thanks for being here, Gabrielle. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So, Gabrielle, you were in your last semester, I guess, of law school and then COVID-19. How did the University of Ottawa handle the shutdown? 
Well, I, I'm in my second to last semester. I still have one more, but it still is quite it's been quite this challenge. The University of Ottawa has been quite good in their turnaround. We only had two days off for teachers to get ready to transfer classes online. Um, and they kept us quite informed throughout, which I appreciated as a student. Classes online are interesting because some teachers aren't comfortable giving live classes, for instance. So they record themselves, so we only get an audio. Sometimes we're just reading our notes. So it has changed quite a bit and it was very sudden. There was no like, oh, let's get used to this. It was just, it's happening. So on that sense, law school in and of itself has completely changed for us. And what's it been like as a student making this transition to online learning? So law school is quite stressful as it is. Um, Changing it to online has been a challenge. There is very little interaction now with teachers um, during class time. Law school is often um, nice to foster debate within the classroom around jurisprudence, for instance, or how laws have changed and all of that. So that is different. Um, It's also putting the responsibility of learning in students' hands, which I've been reflecting on quite a bit recently. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think students should be able to take their learning into their own hands. Secondly, there's no interaction with your peers anymore. There's no um, direct interaction with profs anymore. You can call a teacher if they allow it. And that's one way of asking questions. But the learning in and of itself has changed. Your success will now depend on how you are able to take the material, learn it, take it into your own hands, um, and ask questions when you need to. How are your stress levels? Law school is pretty stressful to start out with. Um, and do you have a sense how your peers are doing? It's, it's an interesting question. I think all of us have different stress levels to start with um, at law school because we all have different backgrounds. I don't I'm a bit more stressed, but I'm not exponentially more stressed. I think the stress will set in more when exam starts next week. Because the last three weeks I have been in charge of my own learning, I don't have um, a scale to measure how much I've learned. Is it enough? Is it not enough? I know a lot of peers have found it a lot more stressful than me because some of my peers have don't necessarily have a room in their parents' house anymore, or they don't live with their parents, or they have a lot of siblings who also have class online. Um, And some are simply just not used to having classes online. So I think stress in general is higher than it would have been if we had stayed, obviously, um, in classrooms. I also think it's important to mention that the situation around the pandemic is quite stressful. It is constantly changing. There is constantly new information. Um, just listening to the news may be stressful for some. And I think it's also important to mention that people are following more what governments provincially and federally are doing now and are getting used to listening to pressers and all of that, which can be an additional stress. So all of that put together can mean that Students overall are more stressed. I think uh, universities are trying to put measures forward um, to deal with that. 
And lastly, on that question, there has been at several universities a lot of call to action for universities to put in place mental health measures. On top of that, we are adding a pandemic. And on top of that, you don't really have access to in-person counseling anymore. So I can imagine for some students who already had high level of anxiety, how much this can change and add more stress to them. So overall, it is case by case. We all deal with um, crises differently. But I would say that overall, people, students are probably more stressed. Yeah, it's really difficult. Um, I, I mean, I think, you know, sort of objectively speaking, this is a difficult situation. Um, but what makes it um, uniquely difficult, it's not just that the virus is novel. It's this strange and unsettling combination of us physically not moving while information races at us. That's a really good way of putting it. Um, definitely. And I'm someone who follows the news every day. So my routine as to following the news hasn't changed. But I can only imagine for someone who hasn't been paying attention that much how unsettling it could be to listen to your prime minister and your premier every day, giving you an update constantly. One thing I've been doing, for example, is setting my phone on do not disturb because I felt like we had a little bing every time someone sneezed or coughed and it was getting a little overwhelming. So... For students, it's probably been super important to control your screen time or control your notification on your phones and stuff. And you mentioned exams. So how are your exams going to proceed? So I can only speak for the University of Ottawa. I know each university has been doing their own thing. But for us at the university, our exam dates haven't changed, which is nice. That way we can continue following the plan we had for the entire semester. So that's on one hand. Every um, faculty has done their own measures. So I'm in the Faculty of Civil Law. And how the dean and the vice dean have decided to put it is that there are general guidelines for the profs and the profs will then decide what they want to do. The biggest change is the pass-fail option. Students will now have the option to opt out of an alpha grade, so an ABCD, um, and have a pass-fail instead. So for students who have had a harder time to cope with this situation, they are now able to put it as a pass-fail, which I think will lower the stress of exams in general. Secondly, they have been careful as to um, change the amount of time we have. I'm at home, my two parents work from home, and my brother is home. It's hard to have three hours of complete silence all the during my exams. So they've ha either allocated uh, more time or changed the exam format. That way you could do parts and pieces throughout a week, for example. So it's hard to give a straightforward answer because for each class it has changed. Um, for some class it hasn't changed at all. So for my securities law, for example, um, I'll have a three-hour exam as if we were in class. But for other, for my um, wills and estate, estate classes, we'll have um, four hours to complete the exam instead of three, which is nice. You know, sometimes you know, the, the choice and the variety, you know, becomes a little bit of an additional stress um, itself, right? Um, yes. You know, it, I, in times of stress, it's it's hard to make decisions. Did, did you have a clear sense of which way 
you were going to go on either opting for the pass-fail or the letter grade, and you don't have to tell us which way you're going, no but, problem, but, yeah. <laughs> but, 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 but did you have a clear idea or did, or did you have to really ruminate over that? So the Faculty of Civil Law has decided, we actually got the email this morning, that we will get to see our grade before we decide on pass or fail. However, for the last two weeks, that we didn't know that um, was an option. And I've been talking to colleagues and uh, some mentors of mine regarding the pass-fail option. If five of my grades are um, letter grades, but one is pass-fail, will an employer automatically assume that I did worse? Or will I have to justify that grade for a couple of years? So the because the options are overwhelming and because we don't necessarily completely understand the implications of a pass-fail, it has brought up a lot of conversation, a lot of conversation with my peers to know what the best um, the best course of action is. However, since the situation has changed now, it is a nice option to know the grade beforehand. So students will be able to, if the situation was bad, if the, in the coming weeks they aren't able to concentrate or whatnot, they will be able to see their grade and decide for the pass-fail option. However, it might not be the same case for every university. I don't know about the other universities, but when we didn't have that option to see our grade, I was quite intrigued as to, as to how I was going to proceed because it can have implications on the future. However, I'm sure most people are understanding of what is going on. It's also hard if you have two candidates, one has put a pass-fail, the other one hasn't, will it weigh? So there's a lot of implications. There's a lot of things to think about, and we don't necessarily have all the information in our hands. We have to go research. I talk to mentors to get their opinion on it. So it is quite a bit of options to weigh out. Well, here's my advice. If you choose to opt for a pass-fail for any number of your classes, but you don't consistently choose the pass-fail option, I think you blame it on the prof. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you say, I, I, opted, I opted for pass-fail because the quality of the online teaching Was didn't cool. give me confidence to opt for a letter grade. <laughs> really good advice. <laughs> um Okay, so uh, can you remind listeners, I mean, someone like me who, uh, you know, graduated from law school in 1998, we paid a, a very different uh, amount of money for tuition. Uh, would you mind just reminding listeners um, approximately how much law school tuition is today? Right. So at the University of Ottawa, it's quite unique because there's a common law section, which is English, um, more the English side of the faculty. So Kind of maybe I should premise that by saying in Canada we have common law and civil law. Civil law is practice in Quebec, common law for the rest of Canada. In the common law section, it is I think around sixteen thousand dollars per uh, semester. I'm not quite sure on that. And then in civil law, it's significantly cheaper. I think it's around four thousand dollars per semester. I can't give a really clear answer because bursaries come in and scholarships come into that number. Um, and it's also depending on which services you opt in or out for. So it's, it is a, a significant chunk of money to say that. Yeah, the, the, I think the parlance is it's material. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
So, you know, bearing uh, that level of financial investment that students are making, you know, what what were you thinking um, about your summer plans? Were you planning on uh, finding a job or, or are you continuing to go through school through the summer? So that's a great question that is giving me great anxiety right now. So I did have a summer job. Um, I also, I have my articling position for 2021. So my articling process was last year. And so it wasn't interrupted. Students who did their articling process were supposed to start in March, March 16th, to be precise. That has been postponed for now. So students who are hopefully trying to get summer placements and then articling placements for this year, it is postponed for now. In my specific case, I had my articling for 2021, so I wasn't looking for one. However, I did have a summer job plan in a firm in their legal department. Whether or not that is cancelled, we do not know yet. It is scheduled to start May 25th. However, I would be more than surprised that it was that is it's going to go forward. Having said that, I know a lot of students are in my position. Either they were planning on getting a job, but articling was postponed, so they aren't right now. And B, their summer placements are being cancelled. And... Uh, maybe a note on that. It's understandable that permanent employees are favored for salaries over um, students. So I take my complaining with a grain of salt. Um, but it is going to be hard. I know a lot of people budget to have a summer job. That way they don't have to work during the school year. The financial implications of that are quite great. The administration of justice in general has been quite disrupted. So it's uh, it's not surprising to hear um, about some of um, the disruptions and the and the different types of responses that that are happening happening across uh, law schools. Yeah, totally. I suspect there's going to be a debate around Jordan's principle and whether or not a global pandemic comes into the equation. Well, Gabrielle, thank you so much for sharing your experiences uh, with uh, with our Canada 2020 audience. I want to wish you and really all students. Um, I'm sending calming thoughts, uh, despite all of the stressors that and headwinds that that are coming your way. I wish you wonderful luck uh, with your exams. Uh, shifting gears, different environments. That's very challenging, and I also, of course. Wish you good luck uh, with your summer. It's uh, it's very difficult. Students are carrying, uh, particularly in connection with certain faculties, much higher um, uh, burdens, financial burdens uh, associated with with their education. So we wish you well. And is there anything you would like? Any parting thought you would like to leave with our listeners as it relates to students? Yes, I'd like to thank uh, the professors because they also have kids and sometimes we hear them when they record classes and all of that. It's also difficult on them and I can only imagine the stress they have. So I'd like to thank all the professors for the constant encouraging thoughts and emails we've been getting. Um, And I'd also like to say to students that it's going to be okay. It's hard to It's hard to imagine it right now, but it will be. We will see each other in September or whether when when we're articling or in the profession. Um, I think it's going to teach us a valuable lesson on resilience and being uh, adaptive to different scenarios. 
I think it's important to see the positive of it, even if it's hard sometimes. But it's an unprecedented time that we will talk about for a long time. But we can just think that, especially for law students or any um, specialty program, that we've been able to finish our semester, all things considered, and we can be proud of that. You absolutely can. Thank you so much for spending time with me and good luck with your exams. Thank you very much.